Today on the show, I'll be covering some crappy-ass movies, so buckle the fuck up. Alright everyone, welcome to Brandon at Random Reviews. I am your host, Brandon Griffiths. Thank you for stopping by, I do appreciate it. My goodness. Okay, so, I've noticed a thing on the internet, you know, mostly in Facebook comment sections, that people seem to to have some pretty distorted perceptions of what is and is not okay to criticize. You know, if somebody criticizes, let's say, a favorite movie of yours, and you come back at them and say, I'd like to see you do better, then you're an idiot. I'm sorry. I hate to break it to you this way, but that that's not a valid argument. Just because I can't make a movie as well as somebody else does... If they made a bad movie, they made a bad movie. You know what I mean? I didn't enter into the business of making movies. I may, I went into the business of reviewing them and critiquing them and different things like that. So, I mean, if you really like a movie, then you really like it. But you need to have like a, a better argument than just, Hey, you person who's making fun of this movie... You couldn't do any better. Well, yeah, who the fuck cares if they can do any better? They didn't try and make a movie. They didn't even set out to put something out there to make that happen. You know, they just are talking about the movie that they saw by somebody who clearly thought that they were good enough to make a movie. So, eat shit. Anyway, so, you know, it's it's the same way with like, okay, think about it this way. If I am a food critic, I might go to a restaurant and get a dish and I might say that the food was bland, it it was poorly seasoned, it, it wasn't cooked properly, it wasn't, you know, it... it the texture was bad, things like that. But a fair response to that is not, I'd like to see you cook a better dish. A fairer response to that would be, you know, that's the way it's supposed to be or that's the way it is. You know, like maybe you just don't like it. You know, I mean, that's probably not even fair either. But it's better than just saying, I'll bet you couldn't cook a better meal than that. And it's like, well, who gives a shit? I didn't say that I was a chef. I said that I was a food critic. You know, I'm, I'm here to critique food. And It's the same way with, you know, anything else. You know, you make anything else, you review a product, you know. If I if I do an unboxing video on YouTube of, you know, getting a new iPhone or something, and I critique a bunch of things about this iPhone, you know, it's like, it's not really fair for me to say, or for, for someone to say to me that I need to know how to make my own cell phone before I'm able to critique. Like, what kind of sense does that make, you know? So, and I, I get the initial thought. It's just like, you want to defend something, but you don't really have the the weapons at your disposal to to make that happen, but it is what it is. And the other thing is, is especially with movies and, and music and TV, the argument against... So if I say that a movie sucked, okay, let's say, like, for instance, I didn't like the last two Thor movies much at all, like Thor Ragnarok and Thor Love and Thunder. I was not a particularly big fan of them. They were too joke-heavy, things like that. But... I've had people tell me that they made how many hundreds of millions of dollars they made at the box office, and I'm like, yeah, but that's, that's not like a valid argument. Like, that's not, just because they were successful, I mean, people had to go and see them, and they were really well marketed, so it's like, you don't know that 
they did that well on their own momentum or if it was just, you know, the hype of the the movie and that maybe they wouldn't have done as well if people would have known off the bat that they were not that great. I mean, Thor Ragnarok, I think, was pretty well loved by a lot of people and I was in the minority, but I still didn't like it. And it's still a bad argument because, like, you take, like, the Hunger Games movies. Like, they, they recently announced that they are doing this prequel movie for Hunger Games and it's like somebody said something about, you know, in a comment section, they were like, I don't really see the point of this or I don't, I mean... It, they, you know, it's probably going to be shittier than the original Hunger Games movies were. And it's like, yeah, I can't really argue with that. Because, I mean, like, I didn't hate the Hunger Games movies, but I didn't think they were, like, anything special at all. And it's like, they just kind of have an okay vibe to them. But they made hundreds of millions and I think maybe even a billion dollars among them all. And, I mean, they were really popular. I just... And I never, I, I couldn't get into the books. I didn't like the tense that they were written in. Like they were, they were in like a second person present tense, I think even. It was really fucking jarring to read. Like I, I didn't really care for that style. And so it's like, anyway, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the Hunger Games movies, but they made billions of dollars. You know what I mean? And same way with like those Divergent movies. I've never seen any of those. But those are all horribly reviewed, but they're all successful movies for the most part. I mean, some more than others, but I, I don't give a shit about them, you know what I mean? And that doesn't mean that they're a good movie just because they're successful. I mean, I'm sure you can think of a band whose music you don't like, and they have a multi-platinum album. I mean, let's get real. I mean, I don't particularly care for Pearl Jam, but I know that Pearl Jam has had several multi-platinum albums and they were very successful and a lot of people do like them and that's just the way it is you know you can't really get around it so we have batman and robin which was released on june 20th 1997 directed by joel schumacher who also directed the uh previous movie in the series batman forever he made saint elmo's fire the Lost Boys, Falling Down, The Client, A Time to Kill, Bad Company, Phone Booth, The Phantom of the Opera, and The Number 23. He's a hit and miss guy. I think Joel Schumacher, you know, rest in peace Joel Schumacher, but like he was, in my opinion, a lot better when he had a smaller budget to work with and he couldn't go off the wall with what he was doing. You know, he didn't, he didn't have all of this money to throw at the screen. It just, it didn't really do well for him, in my opinion. Like, Falling Down is one of my favorite movies. Well, that's a there, it's a very long list, but Falling Down is up there. It's, it's a good movie. And he made that one, and it's not like a high-budget movie, really. I mean, or at least it doesn't look high-budget on the screen. And it's it's solid. It's, it's a simplistic storyline. It's just straightforward, you know. You can basically just see what's happening with this guy who is fucking basically losing his mind because he's so tired of everything that's going on in the world. So the writer of this movie is Akiva Goldsman. He made The Client, which is another Joel Schumacher. Same with Batman Forever and A Time to Kill. But he also made Lost in Space, Practical Magic, A Beautiful Mind, I, Robot, Cinderella Man, The Da Vinci Code, and I Am Legend. Now, the only movies that stand out to me as being concerning in that filmography is Batman Forever, because despite what you may remember, Batman Forever was not a good movie. It was, everybody always says that Jim Carrey was like the only good part even, and even that is 
patently absurd to say. If you watch that movie, I guess a lot of people are hardcore Jim Carrey fans and they refuse to see him. They refuse to bear any ill will towards his movies, but it's like, grow the fuck up. Like, he's gonna have some bad movies. Not all of them are gonna be good. And he's just obnoxious in Batman Forever. And then the other one that he wrote is Lost in Space, which is a laughably bad movie. Can't really get on board with that one, but it's... It, it is what it is. I mean, it's just one of those really mediocre type movies. I remember I had it on DVD because it used to be when you bought a big screen TV, you'd get like a free DVD player and like a handful of DVDs to come with it. And they were just these really like across the board, weird, mediocre movies. Like I think I got Lethal Weapon 4 and Stargate and... I mean, that, that one, Lost in Space was definitely on there. Anyway, it was just kind of a package deal with a new big screen TV. And producer of this movie, Peter McGregor Scott, for the score was a, name, a guy named Elliot Goldenthal, okay? He previously did Pet Cemetery, Alien 3, Demolition Man, Interview with a Vampire, Cobb, Batman Forever, Heat and A Time to Kill. So he's like a frequent collaborator with Joel Schumacher, it would seem, or at least somewhat frequent. And he doesn't have a ton of terrible movies on his resume. And I just cannot stand the score to this fucking movie. And I'll mention it later on, but it's it, it just is all over the place. It doesn't, the themes of the, the score are not good. They're not, they're cheesy. They annoy the shit out of me. Anyway, I'm not diving into it right now, I promise. So Arnold Schwarzenegger is our... Lead actor, he plays Mr. Freeze, a.k.a. Dr. Victor Freeze, which it's confusing to me that his bad guy name is Mr. and his real guy name is Dr. It's it's a very odd choice, but I'm guessing it's because the, uh, the cart came before the horse. Like, they originally didn't have Victor Freeze be this guy that was, like, he had this whole backstory. It was like Mr. Freeze was just Mr. Freeze, you know? It wasn't it wasn't one that you could, like, appeal to people. But we've talked about Arnold on the show before. You know, Arnold is in the Terminator movies, Predator, True Lies, Total Recall, Twins, The Running Man, Commando. Then we've got George Clooney, who plays Batman slash Bruce Wayne. And by the way, if you're one of these people that tells me that somebody was a bad Batman, but they were a good Bruce Wayne... I honestly have no fucking idea what you're talking about. Like I, I, I never, I've never agreed with somebody when they said, when they made it a point to say that they're like, oh yeah, he was a good Bruce Wayne. And it's like, I don't give a shit about, I don't, I, you could be the shittiest Bruce Wayne in the world. And I wouldn't give a fuck because it, that's not what's important. It's a fucking Batman movie. It's not a Bruce Wayne movie. Anyway, Clooney was in the Ocean's Eleven movies, the first three, and I don't know if he was in that new Sandra Bullock one, but whatever. He was in Michael Clayton, Up in the Air, which is a personal favorite of mine, The Ides of March, Good Night and Good Luck, which was solid, Gravity, Oh Brother Where Art Thou, and he was on ER for a few seasons, and I don't remember how many, but he was... That was kind of where he came to, to prominence. Next up, we've got Chris O'Donnell, who plays Robin slash Dick Grayson. He was in A Walk in the Clouds, Scent of a Woman, The Three Musketeers, Vertical Limit. All pretty fucking mediocre. I, I honestly hated Scent of a Woman, but that's just me, I guess. Alicia Silverstone is in this movie. She plays Batgirl slash Barbara 
Wilson, I think, because she's not actually Barbara Gordon in this movie, where they didn't really think it was realistic to have her be Commissioner Gordon's daughter, like she is in every other iteration I've seen of this character that's, you know, Barbara Gordon. And she was obviously, Alicia Silverstone was in Clueless and Blast from the Past, which I hadn't thought about Blast from the Past for such a long time. She was also in Excess Baggage, with Benicio Del Toro, which I enjoyed. And then we've got Uma Thurman, who plays Poison Ivy slash Pamela Isley. And she was, of course, in Pulp Fiction, which is a previously covered movie on this podcast. And she was in the Kill Bill movies, among other things. You know, I'm just kind of being more brief because she's a not top-billed actor in this movie. And then we have Coolio who I don't know if he says anything actually while he's on screen, but Coolio is in this movie, and he also says nothing on screen in the movie Leprechaun in the Hood, which he makes a cameo appearance in. Some casting notes. Uh, David Duchovny was supposedly considered for the role of Batman. Ed Harris, Patrick Stewart, Hulk Hogan, Sylvester Stallone, and Anthony Hopkins were all considered for the role of Mr. Freeze. Julia Roberts, Sharon Stone, and Demi Moore were all rumored to be considered for Poison Ivy. Basic plot synopsis. Okay. The Caped Crusaders do their best to stop two new villains that have teamed up to both freeze the earth and somehow let plants take over in some way as well, despite the two ideas not really being compatible. Will they defeat them? Yes. But will they kill an entire franchise for eight years? Also yes. Let's get down to business here. You know... Other than the bad score, the opening credits are decent. You know, they're not they're not terrible. It's it's a little over the top, like how much emphasis they put on the actors, and then all of a sudden it's like, you know, they do the regular opening credits while stuff's actually happening, but it's basically just like this, you know, this unknown place where all of these critics are showing like or these credits are showing Arnold Schwarzenegger and Clooney and uh, O'Donnell and all that stuff. They do these credits, and during the credits, they're showing them suiting up, and they're, like, getting their gadgets, and they show literal shots of them, like, their butts when they're getting their suits on, and they show, like, their butts coming into form, and it's like, what are we doing here? Like, what the fuck is this? And Batman says, so, it's like the car comes up, and... You know, the, the, the Batmobile, I guess I'll call it the Batmobile. I really don't like to give it that much respect because it's got a disco ball in its fucking hood. But the Batmobile comes up. The silence of the opening credits is broken by Robin saying, I want a car. Chicks dig the car. And Batman says, this is why Superman works alone. And it's like, it really sets the tone for the entire movie. Like, it being that jokey that early on. It's not a good look for them. You see Alfred, he's like, he says something about he'll cancel the pizzas, you know. And he, he it's shown that Alfred is sick or he's got something wrong with him at this point. They want to really, like, bring that into the fold early on in this movie. And I'm just kind of like, oh god, that's what we're... That's what we're doing. Like, I can't imagine what I was thinking in 1997 when I was, like, 10 years old when I saw this movie. And I want to say when I saw this movie at 10, I was, like, already a little too old for it. So it's kind of like, I don't know. It, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't do well for me, like, some of the choices they make. And they do this, what pisses me off the most about these, these first four Batman movies 
is we don't get a single Commissioner Gordon and Batman on the rooftop of police headquarters discussing what's going on. This could have very easily been that. It could have, but what they did was they took, they had like a little TV screen show up in the Batmobile and it's like he's not communicating with Commissioner Gordon. Commissioner Gordon is just briefing him on what's going on and he says, you know, this guy calls himself Mr. Freeze. And it would have been so cool if they could have just gone Batman and Robin up to the top of police headquarters and they could have just said, hey, you know, what do we got? What's going on? And they're like, yeah, we've had this guy break into several different locations. He's, you know, he's frozen a whole bunch of stuff and, you know, left everything in disarray. He's clearly trying to find these diamonds, blah, blah, blah. It would have been a, a cool thing that they they had not done in any previous movies that they again, did not do in this one. The closest we get, I think, to the rooftop thing is when Dr. Chase Meridian turns on the bat signal in Batman Forever and gets Batman to come up there. And yeah, it, it's not the same. And I, I honestly, it's this early on in this movie that I have to say, I hate this score. The music to this movie is terrible. It is fucking horrendous. I don't like the score. The music is just, it It doesn't have a good tone to me. It it, it fits the movie, but I hate the movie, so it, it doesn't really make a difference. And I would say, you know, we get, we see, you know, they go into this museum thing, and this is where Freeze is. He's trying to steal a diamond, and he steal, you know, he's, he's like talking to them, and you see him, and his the design of his costume is horrible. Like, it's it's so busy. It's got so much shit going on. And it could have very easily been something simplistic and something a little more reasonable. But maybe that wasn't as much of an option. Or maybe they didn't, you know, they thought that it needed to be a little more flashy. Because he's literally got, like, blue contacts in. He's got some kind of light-up blue thing in his mouth. I don't know if that was done digitally afterwards or if he had something in his mouth that was doing that. I doubt he had something in his mouth, but it does it does not work out well as far as, you know, like having a cool look to it, you know? It, it could have just been way more simplistic. But this movie, we, we get introduced to Freeze and he starts freezing stuff out of nowhere and it's like he freezes something and... I guess maybe my, it's my understanding of physics that, you know, just freezing something. Like, if I see a brick wall and I freeze that brick wall with ice, that's not going to make that brick wall lose its structural integrity and allow for me to break through the brick wall easier. Like, it would, it would in fact probably make it a little harder to get through the brick wall, although it'd be pretty hard anyway, you know, it would just... It'd be that much harder, and it, it, but it doesn't make any logical sense, and they keep doing it over and over throughout this movie. It's just like, oh, hey, I can't get through this door. Let me freeze it and break it. Hey, I can't break through this statue in my car. Let me freeze it, and I'll break it. You know, it, it doesn't, it's not good. And <laughs> there's a moment where they knock Freeze's gun out of his hand, and it flies comically far up in the air, and lands daintily like a butterfly on top of this dinosaur statue. And it it just, nothing about it looks natural. Nothing looks right in the scene. It's just fucking, ugh. And everything that they do in this movie has like this little snide comment or a little, little joke to go with it. And it's all, and I mean, don't get me started. I can, I could probably see about putting the ice puns that Freeze has in here. Tonight's forecast. 
A freeze is coming. Allow me to break the ice. You are not sending me to the cooler. Freeze well. What killed the dinosaurs? The ice age. <laughs> Stay cool, bird boy. Let's kick some ice. Show some mercy. I'm afraid that my condition has left me cold to your pleas of mercy. No! All right, everyone. Chill. It's a cold town. Cool party. <laughs> Can you be cold, Batman? Chill. To perfection. Revenge is a dish best of cold. Winter has come at last. Freeze. Freeze! Ice freeze! Ice winter five frozen! Ice freeze! Winter ice! Ice freeze! Winter winter! Freeze! Cold! Frosty! And if you know, if they just played, that means I got them. If they didn't just play, that means I was too afraid to toe the line of copyright infringement. So they they had this big, you know, this opening sequence in this museum. They have like basically a hockey game where they're playing with this diamond that Freeze is stealing, which is, by the way, like, the most comically large diamond I've ever seen. Like, I don't believe that there are diamonds out there that are this big, but diamonds can be broken pretty fucking easily. Like, they're the hardest substance in, in nature, I think, but they are not unbreakable by any means. You can, like, they used to, I think in the, in, it was in the Congo or something like that where they were, you know, originally like mining diamonds and they were trying to figure out what was diamond and what was not. And people thought that they could just break the diamonds to find out if they were actual diamonds. And in reality, that's not how it works. So they like broke priceless diamonds. And they have, I, I feel like this is going to be an exhaustive explanation of this movie, but Batman and Robin have literal fucking skates somehow built into their boots that just, they click them together like fucking Dorothy and Toto and they just have skates on their fucking boots. It doesn't make any goddamn sense at all, but they just put it in this movie anyway. Then it's like Freeze is getting away. He's got a rocket. I don't even ask me how he gets to this rocket and what he does, you know, like what, how did he plan this out? I have no fucking idea. And so, and like, this is the thing, Mr. Freeze in like Batman, the animated series he has a motive, and that motive is only to figure out how to cure his wife, right? She's under, like, cryosleep or whatever you want to call it, and he's trying to figure out a way to save her, and he needs this stuff that he's breaking in and stealing for his research, okay? He's not, like, he's he's a relentless guy about how he gets his, his stuff that he needs, you know, his provisions, but he's also not, like, deliberately trying to destroy the entire city or kill a whole bunch of people unnecessarily. He's literally just trying to help his wife. So he, he has this rocket. They go out up in this rocket and you think Robin gets left behind, but actually he's like climbing around on the outside while Batman's inside the rocket and freeze freezes Batman to the wall of the inside of this rocket. And it's like, what are we doing here? Good God. You know, they get in there, they're going to break out of this, you know, Freeze has set it to blow and it's going to kill thousands and Batman and Robin just, you know, they use these two doors on the walls of the rocket that are there for no reason. Like, I don't know why you'd have multiple doors in a rocket and Robin and him, you know, they, they go out and 
it's like they're riding these doors down like surfboards, but there's like, there would literally be no logical advantage to use something as a surfboard while basically plummeting to earth. You know what I mean? Like he doesn't use any logic. It's, it's just like, oh yeah, let's just have them do this and it'll be cool. The kids will like it. You know, we could probably make a toy out of it or whatever. And they don't, they just, they keep fucking, you know, it's like Robin's riding down with this, Thing that looks like a surfboard on his feet that is not flying off of his feet for some reason and at one point he says cowabunga and that was i mean it's been said before but it was a very dated thing to say in 1997 this cowabunga word but i mean only the turtles are allowed to say cowabunga i'm sorry the the, the teenage mutant ninja turtles are only allowed to say cowabunga and at this point anyway and so they're they're chasing freeze they somehow get down to the ground, you know, freeze, freeze is freezing this furnace in this building, and then they're chasing after him, and he's going through, like, one door after another. Robin goes after him when they get into an open spot, and, free, and, and Batman's like, Robin, no, and freeze freezes Robin. It's like, he doesn't fall, like, he, he freezes in place in midair, and does not fall down. He's just suspended with maybe his feet touching the ground. I don't know. But I'll promise you this. He would not just stay there. He would fucking fall over. So basically it's like Batman has to choose. Do I chase Freeze or do I save Robin? And he saves Robin of course. And he gets really pissed at Robin for being stupid. And Freeze says I'll kill you next time. And it's like so he's already... He's already frozen Robin to the point that the, the big thing in this movie is you have 11 minutes to thaw somebody. It's a completely ridiculous rule that doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know a lot about that kind of shit, like biology and whatnot, but I, I don't understand why it's 11 minutes, but it is what it is. And Freeze says, I'll kill you next time as he's leaving. And it's like, but why not now, Mr. Freeze? Why wouldn't you just fucking kill Batman now? Because you know he's just going to be a problem for you. You know he's just going to be a thorn in your side. So he doesn't. And we go to, from here, you know, he gets, he like, Batman and Robin are there. You know, he has to save Robin. And, uh, and Mr. Freeze gets away. And then we go to this lab in South America. And it's like, we get Pamela Isley. And she's kind of monologuing to herself about, you know, her boss, Dr. Woodrow, and the things he be he's been doing. He's been stealing her samples of things and using them in his experiments. And he do she doesn't really know what he's been up to, but she knows it's not good. And she goes to get through this, you know, she goes to see what he's doing. And she's it's like she goes up to this door, and it's like you'd think it'd be at least locked or something. But all she does is push it open, and she walks in there, and there's like... A bunch of guys, like, really fucking horrible caricatures of people from different countries. And they they got the guy that's going to become Bane strapped to, you know, one of those things like in Frankenstein. You know, it's like he's got his, his arms and legs tied down and all that stuff. And he, I mean, it's really, I mean, it's so stupid. It, it's, I, I'm struggling here because it's like, he doesn't, he, he makes Bane into Bane. And then you see how strong Bane is. And then basically Pamela Isley tells Dr. Woodrow that he's going to, that she's, you know, 
she's had enough. She's going to, you know, do this, that, and the other thing. And so he basically, like, effectively tries to kill her. He knocks over a whole bunch of stuff, and she, like, is basically consumed by the earth. And it's it's all a bit bizarre. And we basically get this, you know, she becomes poison ivy because all of these chemicals fall on the ground. We get Bane, and then we get poison ivy within, like, five minutes of each other max. And I just can't stand Bane in this movie. He's, like, so dumbed down. In the comics, Bane is, like, this super intelligent, strong guy that, you know, is able to carry out these big plans. Like, he he releases a bunch of bad guys from Arkham Asylum to basically wear out Batman. And then he fucking breaks Batman's back. But this guy, this Bane, does not do any of that shit. He's not smart enough. He's just fucking idiotic. And then... Poison Ivy doesn't, like, when she, she re-emerges as, as Poison Ivy from being Pamela Isley, she starts doing this voice, like, she's like, I fit, I replaced my blood with aloe, and I filled my lips with venom, and it's like, what is this? Like, what is this voice you're doing, Uma Thurman? Like, what are you thinking? And so we go back, we got them, they're kind of, uh, Batman and Robin are kind of trying to figure out what's going on with Freeze, and you kind of get his origin story, you understand, like, okay, it's, it's Dr. Victor Freeze, he was doing experiments, and there was, like, an accident, and he fell into this super cool tank or something, and it almost killed him, but basically just made it so he had to be in cold temperatures all the time. And we get this big subplot of Bruce not trusting Dick. Like, just repeatedly, Bruce is like, you know, no, you're not doing this because I said so. And it's, you know, this, that, and the other. So Robin gets really frustrated with him and he's like, you know, I don't understand why you won't trust me. And they didn't really do I mean, it's just kind of like it comes out of nowhere. It's like they make the, like, the entire plot kind of like have this as like a backbone to it of like Batman and Robin are at odds with each other and they're fighting and it's it's fucking terrible but I will say so I kind of jumped the gun on the whole poison ivy thing but like Uma Thurman emerges from the dirt and honestly like I'm not a big Uma Thurman fan I don't like I I never really thought she was I, I never thought she was ugly but I never thought she was that attractive but she is at like peak hotness in this moment where she emerges from the dirt as Poison Ivy. Like, she's she's got, like, a crop top on. She's, you know, her hair's a mess. And, like, she just looks really fucking good. I don't know why. And, and the voice is just as insufferable as ever. So there's a scene where they go back to... After they show Poison Ivy's emergence, they, they go to Mr. Freeze's hideout. And Arnold is there in a bathrobe. And like polar bear slippers and he is singing along with the you know the, the claymation uh the a year without santa claus one where he's like i'm mr white christmas and it's like he's making his goons sing along with that and then i think it's vivica a fox that is his like his lady in the scene and she says something like talk about your cold shoulder and it's like Oh no, and the freeze puns are, they are ever prevalent in this fucking movie. And and it kind of sucks because I was like, I was thinking, okay, I can read, a, read up about this movie 
and I can see, you know, I can, I know I've seen the movie so many times. It's not even anything to me anymore. And I thought I can just look up a whole bunch of stuff and kind of fill in my notes and then, you know, just take regular notes throughout the movie, not wondering about certain things. And I realized at this point that like I had read something about them having to dub a bunch of lines, like do ADR for a bunch of these lines in this movie. It is so painfully obvious at a lot of points in this movie where it's like, Freeze says something to the effect of like, it's winter forever here in Gotham and nothing about what he's saying lines up with what he's, you know, what his mouth says, you know, and it, it, it looks terrible. It looks cheap. It's just, and it doesn't make sense that fucking Mr. Freeze has to be cold and he would be wearing a fucking bathrobe in this scenario to what? Keep himself warm? I don't I don't know what he's wearing a bathrobe for. I really don't. I don't get it. Then they, they you know, when they introduce Alicia Silverstone as Barbara and you know she's going to become Batgirl and it's just it's so I used to when I was a kid, I had a big old crush on Alicia Silverstone and now like looking back on it, I'm like I didn't know any better. Like she was not a bad-looking girl, but she's not like super hot you know like she doesn't she never looked like particularly great you know what I mean like she she's always doing this weird thing with her lips and stuff I don't know it's not it's not great I mean nothing against Alicia Silverstone she's okay she's only been in a handful of movies that I can remember but her in this movie it's just ridiculous there's a moment where it's like they're talking it's it's Bruce Dick Barb and Alfred and they're walking around and Bruce mentions something about how she's been studying at Oxbridge, which is a, an amalgamation of Oxford and Cambridge. And she's supposed to be British, but she doesn't do a British accent at all for some reason. And I, it's not clear why that is. And she asks Bruce how he knows that she, that she studied at Oxbridge. And he's like, it says so on the patch on your sweater. And it's like, if I'm wearing something like that and somebody calls it out, I immediately recognize that that's why they called it out or, you know, like that's what they're calling out. I would not ask them how they knew. I would just figure that they figured it out somehow. You know what I mean? It, it's just, it would be better to not go with, but it, it just, it sounds so wonky. There's this, there's a super fucking long, like there's a noticeably long period at the end of these interactions with the four of them where it's like, you don't even fucking know what is the deal. Like, it's like, there's, they're just not talking and they're all just kind of looking at each other and the music is playing and it's all shitty. And it's like, what are we doing here? You know what I mean? Like, why are you guys not cutting to the next scene? And when I heard that Joel Schumacher delivered this movie two weeks early, all I could think was like, oh, you couldn't have fucking done any of this kind of work on this. You couldn't, have, you couldn't have done another once over on this movie. That's all you're telling me. We find out immediately, immediately that, uh, Barb is not who she says she is. You know, you think she's this goody good uh, schoolgirl type and she's she's not. She's like stealing a bike, you know, a motorcycle while, you know, it's while it's late and Dick catches her and like she goes to this race and Coolio's there. Coolio, he's there. The only other movie I can think of that Coolio's in is Leprechaun in the Hood and or is it Leprechaun in the Hood? I don't know. Anyway, we cut to, I guess it's from Barb stealing the, the motorcycle. We cut to Poison Ivy and Bane in this like 
old style limousine. I don't know cars, so I don't know what kind of car it is, but it's like, it's definitely like an old school limo. And it's like, she tells Bane, she's like, Gotham Observatory, Bane, darling, and step on it. And I'm like, how in fuck's name does Bane know where to go to get to the Gotham Observatory? Why would he have any cursory knowledge of this fucking city, even a little bit? He'd be fucking more lost than you would if you were just driving yourself because you probably are, you know, I don't even know if Bane's supposed to be American, you know what I mean? So it's like, how the fuck would he know? And then, you know, we go to the observatory and they're doing this presentation about this telescope and all this, you know, these satellites and stuff. And we see Gossip Gertie, who I don't know the lady's name, but she's this lady played by what is clearly one of Joel Schumacher's friends. And it's like, holy shit, this is fucking terrible. Like what she like announces for so like she's like basically like doing exposition work. And it's like, what is her purpose in this movie other than that? Because we could have heard that from anybody else. Why do we need this special lady to be there announcing everything? And, you know, Pam is trying to she's come, she's she's trying to break up whatever they're doing, and she wants them to save the rainforests and all this other shit. And and basically, like, these security guards are, like, asking her to stop and, like, slowly backing and, like, not doing anything to stop her. And, like, Bruce Wayne's like, well, I'm sure you're not going to hurt me, right, ma'am? And it's like, well, you don't fucking know that because you don't know her at all. So how the fuck do you know she doesn't have a gun on her or whatever? And it's like, then Bruce fucking invites her to this fundraiser for the fucking rain or for the, you know, like, they're going to auction off diamonds for the rainforest. It doesn't, it's like, why would you invite her? She's a fucking lunatic. Like, what's she doing hanging out at a fucking fundraiser of yours, you know? And I, it's at this point, you know, like, we, we hear more. I mean, every time I hear Uma's voice, you know, whenever she's, she's doing the Poison Ivy voice, it's like she's doing, she's doing it and I, I'm wondering why nobody stopped her. Why did nobody step in and say, hey, hey, Uma, um, hey, buddy, uh. What, what are you doing? What's this voice all about? Why are you, why are you talking so bizarrely? It doesn't make any fucking sense. And it's like, apparently nobody did that. And we go, you know, we go first thing right after he gives her the invitation to this benefit. We go to the benefit and we see, you know, it's kind of similar to the, the circus scene from Batman Forever. It's like we get this very weird style of Joel Schumacher's when he has a budget he has this style where it's like everything's like neon black light colors and it's just it's really bizarre it's just it, I don't you get these monkey like these gorillas that are you know gorilla costumes that people are wearing that are dancing around and I'm like what they reveal that one of the uh, gorillas that's all dressed up is, is actually Poison Ivy, and she reveals herself, and everybody's fucking bidding on all of these women at this move, at this, uh, benefit, and they're not bidding with any rhyme or reason, they're bidding, you know, $10,000 on this girl, and then they, like, escalate that bid to, like, 30000 on the next girl, and it's like, why are you, why are you upping the ante? You haven't had anybody bid on her yet, you know, like, you shouldn't move to the next girl if you want to beat him out. And she, you know, she's kind of dancing to this, like, you know, soothing music. And and Poison Ivy, like, drops down. And these six guys are choreographed catching her, I guess. 
And, and at this point, I said to myself, um, she opens her mouth and the looks fade away. And for that reason, I'm out. And, and all of a sudden, Batman and Robin are there. And they're, you know, like, Ivy's got this thermal dust that she's, like, blowing into the air and making, you know, bringing all these guys under her control or, like, you know, is making them act insane and, like, you know, hot-blooded or whatever. And Bruce and Dick are are bidding back and forth on Pamela Isley, or Poison Ivy, excuse me, and she, it's like they keep escalating it. And Robin is, you know, they, they're bidding into the millions at this point. And it's like, what... What is the the standard bid escalation? Like what are what are we doing as far as okay, if I say one million dollars, is the next bid really two million dollars? Or is it you know, so they're just escalating by one million at a time, and Dick says to Bruce, he's like, That's a utility belt, not a money belt. Or excuse me, Robin says to Batman, because they're on, you know, I'm on first name basis with them. He says, That's a utility belt, not a money belt. And it's like you do realize that Batman has, like, an absurd amount of money, right? Like, he's he's actually got more money than has even been close to bidded. And, like, you have no money. You have no source of income. You don't have a job. You don't have any of that shit. You just have this. You know, like, you just, you're just bidding his money, basically. So they go, you know, Freeze breaks in. They, you know, they chase Freeze across the city. And... They're, they're driving down the arm of one of these giant statues and Batman disables Robin Robin's bat cycle and because he doesn't trust he can make this jump and like it shit just keeps happening but like the pursuit overall of the free of freeze is like completely ridiculous like it doesn't make any sense and then it just ends with like Batman flying into freeze's windshield and unveiling him from under his cape, which I don't understand at all. Like, I, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> so so they take Mr. Freeze to, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger to Arkham Asylum, you know, the, the mental hospital where they keep all of Batman's villains. And uh, they take him there and, like, they, they bring him in in, like, a an ice box, like a freezer, you know, refrigerator type thing. And it's like he steps out of it and he's about to just break right out, you know, and he not, you know, he's got these two guards and one of these guards is Jesse Ventura. And it's like, he goes to knock the guys out and, and run away and slowly realizes that he has to be in the cold and he can't make it very far. You know, he's doing all this like choking up and like freaking out because he's outside of the, the cold area. They slow, the guards slowly get back up and they, all I could think was like, oh man, you know, Arnold puts on a great performance with, uh, you know, acting like he's he's in trouble because he's outside of the cold. And it's like, he doesn't get any credit for it because his performance is just overshadowed by the tremendous acting of Jesse Ventura. And, and there's a moment where a guy named Nikki, the actor Nikki Cat plays some biker thug that is like trash talking Barb when she goes to this fucking uh, motorcycle race. And it's like, where, what are we talking about here? You know what I mean? Like he doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Cause I'm like, I know that's not that guy's voice. And then I remembered, oh, right. They're 
they're dubbing them. And they dubbed the guy, Nikki Cat. they dubbed his character with like a different guy's voice. And I'm like, for such a small part, why wouldn't you just have somebody else play him? You know what I mean? Why would you dub such a big character, such a little character for just a few lines? You know, it doesn't, it doesn't really make logical sense. And Barb, you know, she's back at, you know, they, they come back from the race, you know, we get Coolio and all that fun stuff. And like, it's like, she, she says something to, to Robin, Robin about how she wants to get Alfred out of this, you know, looking after these two. She doesn't think he wants to be a butler and, you know, she thinks he's like an indentured servant and all this stuff. And she, uh, she tells Robin, she says, don't you know what's going on with Alfred? He's sick. And then Bruce clarifies it by saying, Alfred's not sick, he's dying. And it's like, Bruce, could it possibly be that he's dying because he's sick? Is that a reasonable assessment of the situation? I mean, is he not die? Is he not sick just because he's dying? I don't think so. So, I mean, Freeze, we get, I mean, it keeps bouncing around. And I, I guess it, it, they don't do a bad job of that, like keeping it balanced. And we get a, a shot of Freeze and he makes an ice sculpture of his wife out of like a, the gears of a clock. And like, she like, like takes a piece of ice, sculpts it into his wife, uses the gears of a clock to make it so he can put a platform on it and rotate it. And then he puts like a glass jar that I guess he got because they'd let prisoners have glass, you know, for any reason. Anyway, it, they just show this and it's like, okay, I mean, that's one way to do it. And... Poison Ivy comes to break out Mr. Freeze, and Bane can't break through the reinforced steel wall, so what do we do? Oh, we just freeze that reinforced steel wall. That'll make it easier to get through. And there's a line reading where Freeze says that he needs to get his diamonds from his hideout, and Poison Ivy says it, and I'm going to try and do my best to deliver it the same way. I'll help you get your rocks. Yeah, that's what she says. And that's how it comes off, and it's fucking terrible. And they dive, they dive from a very high tower at Arkham Asylum, and they do not die at all. And all he says is like, I hope your friend, I hope your friend Mr. Bane can swim. And that's it. Like, that's all we get. And Batman and Robin are talking, you know, after, you know, they, they find Freeze's hideout, and they, they're looking around to see what they can find. And they're, um... They're talking about basically how they're over Ivy, even though they've been like fighting over Poison Ivy for ever since they met her. And they make these weird comments about her having good stems and buds too. And it it feels like two gay guys running interference trying to make themselves seem straight. Like that's what I... It, it, it doesn't sound like anything I would say... Like, I don't use, even, like, as a joke, like, because it's Poison Ivy, like, it sounds stupid. You know what I mean? Like, it, it doesn't sound like anything that guys would say to each other. What I, what drives me nuts is that, you know, Ivy and Freeze and Bane are going back to Freeze's lair to get his wife and get his diamonds, okay? And for some reason, Freeze puts... Ivy in charge of getting his wife instead of putting her in charge of getting the diamonds. But there's literally no logical sense. It would be easier for Poison Ivy to get the diamonds and pick them up and take them with her easily as opposed to Freeze going and, you know, doing that little menial task and like he could just be going and picking up his wife and taking her wherever I don't know it's very confusing because you don't really know how they move Nora Freeze because she is in like deep sleep in this like 
cryo bath thing and they turn on they turn on the super super cool and one of the guards announces that his lungs are freezing faster than you could possibly freeze a lung with any conventional technology ever and poison ivy at one point starts getting in a fight with batman and robin and she says that's why every poison ivy action figure comes complete with hips <sighs> um and i mean there there are a lot of criticisms about this movie and being you know just a toy commercial you know what i mean basically just being a toy commercial nothing else and freeze has like poison ivy convinced like she tries to kill nora freeze by unplugging her cryo tank and she tells freeze that batman killed her and there was nothing she could do. But like Freeze, he he might not like Batman, but he doesn't have any reason to believe that that Batman's the kind of guy that would do that to somebody. You know what I mean? Like he knows that the wife would be an innocent bystander in this situation. And they keep having their little, you know, like the Bruce and Dick drama that has been going on throughout this entire movie. I don't give a shit about it. It doesn't it doesn't pique my interest at all. It doesn't do anything for me. And it's funny because what Alfred ends up being sick with, it's actually the same disease that Freeze's wife is sick with, and she has a more advanced stage of the disease, and Alfred has an early stage, which Freeze has already cured. And so, yeah, that just comes back in a big way toward the end. And I don't know if it's supposed to be that... I mean, the way they present it is that Alfred is the uncle of Barb, and Barb's mom, you know, so Barb's mom was Alfred's sister. And it's like nothing about it. Because I mean, like Alicia Silverstone is supposed to be like 19 years old in this fucking movie. And Alfred has got to be pushing 90. I mean, he's fucking old. Like Michael Goff is fucking old as shit in this movie. I would buy a great uncle. Okay, great uncle. And you don't have to call somebody a great uncle. I have great uncles and great aunts that I just call my aunt. And that's how it is. But it's like, what are we, you know, what are we doing as far as that's concerned? You know, I mean, it's, it's like, it doesn't make any logical sense. This picture of Barb's mom is older than it looks like it should be. So <laughs> there's a sequence. It's probably my favorite sequence in the movie. It's where uh, Barb is trying to get into this disc that Alfred gave to her to give to her, you know, to Alfred's brother. And she decides she's going to get into the disc and she's guessing all these passwords and the passwords aren't being blanked out by, you know, the pro program she's using. So you're seeing what she's guessing and she's guessing the most generic fucking passwords and the password. Okay. So Alfred had a nickname for his sister that was Peg. Her real name was Margaret. And he was like, it was, that was the password. Peg, P-E-G, was the only password. And it's like, I know that password restrictions weren't as stringent as they were, or as they are now, I should say. But it's like, there is no fucking way that that would have been somebody's password. You know what I mean? You, you make it a three-letter password, you're gonna gamble with that? Okay. <laughs> they keep saying, and like, inexplicably, the, the computer voice keeps saying, access denied. And then when she gets it right, it goes access allowed and it's super creepy like it's so like it sounds like a phone sex operator you know and so we get all of this stuff with uh at the end of the movie where you know they're talking about bane and uh, they've got bane doing these bombs he's putting ice bombs everywhere and every time he sets a bomb down on the ground he says bomb 
And that's it. That's all he fucking says. That's all the dialogue they gave this guy. And it's like, <laughs> you see that, that Alfred, like Barbara gets into the Batcave and Alfred says that he programmed his brain algorithms into the computer, which is not like something you can just do at all, as far as I know, especially not in 1997. And he created a virtual simulation of himself. And so he basically took the liberty, as he says, of tailoring a suit to her size so she could become Batgirl. And like they show her suit up, they, you know... They do a shot of her boobs and I think her butt and it's like, you know, the the big shtick with this movie, like everybody criticizes it. It's because <laughs> they they say that like, you know, the bat suits had nipples on them and it is pretty stupid. I mean, the, the argument for them was like they, they, you know, emulated the like Greek and Roman statues and stuff, you know, which I guess is something we get, you know. They're trying to catch Poison Ivy. We get Batgirl's entrance through the um, the skylight, just like in Batman 1989. But she, like, falls down, and it's like, you don't... They make it seem like she's, she's like, free-falling all the way down. And she just lands gracefully on her feet with no problem whatsoever. And so it's a, a super wonky entrance for her. And then... Batgirl just does all these monologues to Poison Ivy talking about she gives she gives women a bad name and stuff like that and it's like all right and I mean as far as I can tell at this point like Batgirl would know nothing about Poison Ivy or Bane or Mr. Freeze at all she would have no fucking idea and I have to point out okay I cannot I'm not a big fan of the fake beauty mark that used to be popular with a lot of girls in that era where it's like, you know, you just do this little dot by the side of your mouth or something. And like, I also am not a big fan of Monroe piercings. I don't think they're a good look. I think they, they look terrible, but you know, I mean, do what you do. I mean, I don't fucking know anything about anything. So, and, and the score just keeps bouncing. Like I, I, I want to go back to the score just because there's so many themes and because they're basically the same exact theme in both Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, it really sticks out to me when you hear the theme. Cause it's like, you've already heard it before. And it's like, why, why would they settle for this? You know what I mean? It, it's just, it's really fucking bad. And it doesn't have any smooth transitions. It's just crashing into one another. And at one point, they're clearly trying to emulate like the 60s Batman. And they keep shooting their grappling hooks in this sequence where they're, you know, they, they've defeated Poison Ivy and they've got to go to freeze now. And because he's trying to freeze the planet. And, you know, it's because he mostly because he thinks his wife is dead that he's kind of lost all hope. And he's just and they have such great dialogue as no sign of the snowman. Maybe he melted. No, he's just hibernating. Yep. Mm -hmm. Means absolutely fucking nothing that snowmen don't hibernate. That's not a thing. Um, basically, when everything's in an ideal scenario where they're trying to unfreeze the city, they it would be impossible to freeze it in the amount unfreeze it in the amount of time that they have. But it's also like something breaks and they can't do what they were gonna do, so they have to like deflect sunlight from the other side of the earth, which would be fucking impossible like to actually get the the sunlight's strength oh god and so that's what they do they deflect sun from the other side of the earth to unfreeze the city and it's like why are we doing this and and batman somehow has you know like freeze is pissed at Batman for killing his wife. And then Batman whips out this video that nobody could have possibly taken in the moment. And 
it's basically just Ivy saying, like, I'll tell you what I told Lady Freeze when I pulled her plug. This is a one-woman show. And it's like, okay. And we find out Freeze has the cure for stage one of McGregor syndrome on him, just in case. And Alfred says something to the effect when they're wrapping up because he's all better after he's gotten the cure. He says, we're going to need a bigger cave, which is a Jaws reference that has no business in this movie. It has not been earned. It is not good at all. Please, for the love of God, I'm, I'm done. I'm done talking about the plot of the movie. I got a few more things to talk about, and I swear it'll be over soon. Okay, so production notes and trivia. Joel Schumacher has apologized for this movie on multiple occasions. Mr. Freeze uses 27 ice puns throughout the movie. John Glover said Schumacher would sit on a crane with a megaphone before each take and yell, Remember everyone, this is a cartoon, which Glover said set the tone for the movie in his eyes. Chris O'Donnell and Arnold Schwarzenegger never worked a day together on set, but met while promoting the film Offset. Clooney and his stunt doubles went through as many as 50 rubber bat suits or more in the making of this movie. They were made of a new foam rubber material to make them somewhat lighter, but they also became less durable because of it. There was an 11-man team to get Arnold Schwarzenegger into costume and makeup every day. Per IMDb, many of Elle McPherson's scenes were cut from the final release of the movie. Her Apparently her character's name is actually Julie Madison, which I never caught until this viewing of the movie. And it's apparently Bruce Wayne's first notable girlfriend from the Batman comics. So that's that's nifty. I mean, that's a nice... It's nice that they did that. I wish they kind of could have taken any other nods from the comics at all. IMDb Nuggets. Yes. Uma Thurman and Elle McPherson both went on to have children by Arpad Busan, who refused to marry either of them, which is like... <laughs> It's like, what? Like, did he actually on record say he refused to marry them? Or did he just say, I, uh, you know, did he just end things with them? Or did they, you know, they just not work out? Like, what is, what is this bullshit about he refused to marry them? Another note, this is pretty amusing. This movie bears a few striking resemblances to The Dark Knight Rises from 2012. First is Talia al Ghul's taunt that James Gordon has only bought Gotham... 11 minutes, which is exactly the same amount of time Mr. Freeze tells Batman his frozen victims have to live. Secondly, Selina Kyle tells Bruce Wayne that there's a storm coming, which is also similar to what Mr. Freeze tells his allies. Uh Uh-huh. Yep, that's right. Super fucking fascinating. Runtime, 125 minutes. Budget from anywhere from 125 million to 160 million. Worldwide gross, $238.2 million. IMDb rating, 3.7. Rotten Tomato critic score, 12%. Rotten Tomato audience score, 16%. Personal rating, 1.5 out of 5 stars for undeniable watchability due to the high level of stupidity. Thank you very much. Moving on to Ed. March 15th, 1996 was a release date for this movie. Directed by Bill Corturi, and it was written by David Mickey Evans, who also wrote The Sandlot and directed The Sandlot. Produced by Rosalie Swedlin and Bill Finnegan. And lead actor is Matt LeBlanc, who you know as Joey from Friends, and also the show Joey, which was much more popular than Friends, of course, because it was such a good show. Lost in Space, 
Charlie's Angels, apparently. I didn't realize that. I didn't know he was in that movie. And Jonah Hex, which is a notoriously bad movie that I've never seen. So Jake Caputo and Denise Cheshire did the character of Ed, who is, by the way, in case I haven't mentioned, which I don't think I have, there is a monkey named Ed that is the star of this film. Anyway... An actress named Jane Brooke is in this movie. She plays Lydia. She looks an awful lot like Linda Cardellini, like maybe like a sibling type, but I don't think it is. Jack Warden plays Chubb, and he is in, you know, he's very familiar looking, you know, like I didn't know his name off the top of my head, but he's in like 12 Angry Men, the original, All the President's Men, and Justice for All, which I want to see, While You Were Sleeping, and The Replacements. Bill Cobbs plays the character Tipton, who I've seen in a bunch of stuff, but he was in The Taking of Pelham 123, Demolition Man, and Air Bud, because apparently he's got a a thing for sports movies that feature animals as players. Jim Caviezel plays the character of Dizzy, who is in um, Frequency and Passion of the Christ as Jesus. Matthew Perry was considered for Matthew LeBlanc's role of, oh, what the hell was his name? Jack Deuce Cooper, okay? So, one thing you'll notice in this movie repeatedly throughout is they keep talking about they they'll refer to Matthew LeBlanc or they'll refer to Matt LeBlanc's character as Deuce, which is his nickname, or Coop, which is his other nickname. And they just use them interchangeably. It doesn't matter who's talking to him. It's just it is what it is. So, if I do that at all, I'm sorry, but it was as confusing for me watching the movie as it would be for you listening to this. And trust me, you're going to want to hear all the fun stuff that goes on. Plot synopsis. A down-on-his-luck farmer turned major league pitcher gets tasked by his team with taking care of their chimpanzee mascot who becomes a star player. And, all right, so they really start this one out hot. You know, it's like basically Matt LeBlanc has never played baseball in his life before and he's just this natural talent at pitcher. And so he he gets on this team. One of the One of the... Scout says, holy torpedo arm, Batman. I think we got a rocket arm. Yeah, uh uh-huh. And, I mean, he supposedly never played baseball at any level before this, which is insane to me. Like, to have the form of being able to, to pitch well... I feel like you would almost have to. Like, I don't know how many documented cases there would be of, like, people who could pitch without any coaching throughout their entire life and just walk onto a minor league baseball team. It's it's a weird choice that they, like, make him a farmer and then they have him be, like, super close with the animals. And, like, it's not... I don't think it's weird that he names him as a farmer, but I think it's weird that he's, like, so upset when they, like, slaughter a pig to have breakfast, you know? Like, he's super, super ridiculous. And Jim O'Hare, who plays Jerry on Parks and Rec, is calling the game, and I've never seen him with hair this dark. Uh, So there's this running thing with this movie where Matt LeBlanc keeps throwing a curveball at this one batter, and the batter always, like, home runs it over the fence, you know? And it's like, and it's at that point that Chubb, his man, you know, the baseball manager says, for God's sakes, tell me he ain't gonna throw the curve to him. And that's, that's as flat as the line reading is. And it's, it's, it's terrible. So the owner guy is like, he's not even really the owner. I think he's like the president or something. And he is fucking awful. Like his, his way of speaking is just bizarre and like everything he he's like huh hmm huh hmm and he like every every time he talks everything is just p- 
punctuated with shit like that. So they send Matt LeBlanc to go pick up this new star player or whatever. And he goes to the bus and there's a fucking monkey on the bus and this is who he's picking up. And, you know, he has a big run-in with the monkey of, like, not being able to get in the truck. And he wants monkey to ride in the back and different shit like that. And it's definitely not a real monkey. Like, they do it. I, I won't say they do a terrible job of making it look like a real chimpanzee. But it's, like, it's not the same, like... His eyes just, his eyes and his entire face is basically like mechanical. So it's like, it just doesn't look right. And when he gets to the, back to the baseball diamond, he like takes off the, the president guy's uh, wig and is generally just having a good old time. It's just like, wow, like what a, what a hilarious occurrence to have him remove the fucking wig from this guy. And they're talking about this, you know, this chimpanzee. And one of them says, he's an animal, chub. It's not like he plays ball or anything. And then two seconds later, the chimpanzee catches the fucking ball out of nowhere. And it's like, oh, he can fucking really throw the ball too. Oh man, what an exciting turn of events. And he he only has like this slight movement of his arm. And the ball just rockets across to first base. And it's like, yeah, that's believable. That's reasonable. And we meet a mom near where Matt LeBlanc lives. I guess I'm just going to call him Matt Matt LeBlanc in this movie because, you know, that's the easiest. We meet a mom named Lydia and her daughter Liz, and clearly there's, like, some romantic chemistry there. And they they make some weird comment. The mom says he is one troubled guy because they, like, invite him over for dinner, and he says no because he's got a, you know, he's busy. And... The mom says that he's a troubled guy, and the daughter says, I guess, but he has a great butt. And it's like, who is that for? Like, who, why did we want that? And I just can't believe, like, they're they're suggesting to me that this monkey doesn't have a handler, that, like, nobody's keeping track of, like, what this, this chimp is doing, you know? And it's like, you would have to have some professional handling it to understand what they're, you know, what they're going for. And we keep getting this over and over where it's like Matt LeBlanc's character is, he keeps waving off this, the catcher's signal for a fastball and he wants to throw a curveball. And for some reason, the, you know, the guy throws the, you know, like whenever he throws the curveball, the guy hits, hits it out of the park. And it's like, what, what, what's he, what's his like, driving motivation between you know between one and the other pitch like why does he want to throw the curveball so bad like just to show that he can get a strike with the curveball like is that it and I mean there's a scene where Ed is making uh or Ed is like stuck outside because Matt LeBlanc doesn't want him to be out or to be inside and Ed breaks down the door and for some reason we see like Matt LeBlanc is standing with his head down between his legs, looking at the door behind him when it falls down, and it's like, why is he like that? They never answer that question. It's like, what what is going on here? And we get a little nod to Friends, because, you know, it's on the TV that Ed's watching. They just keep switching back and forth between calling Matt LeBlanc Coop and calling Matt LeBlanc Deuce, and it's like, what? Pick one. Like, just either... Call him Coop and make it his, you know, his nickname or make his last name not be something that you can make a nickname out of, you know? And I love, I love the old trope in this movie that they do, which is like somebody's carrying groceries in 
and they always 100% have a baguette sticking out of the top of the fucking grocery bags, and it's like, what, what, like, why, why do you have a bag, like, why does everybody get a baguette, I don't remember ever having bought a baguette at the grocery store in my life, there have to be other people like me, right? And I, I I kept thinking at this point, because they basically force this love interest thing into the movie, and I feel like for relatability for me, I'd really love to see a, a movie where they don't have a love interest, and they just kind of solemnly walk through life and don't give a shit about anything. They go to, like, the carnival or the fair or whatever you want to call it, and it's like, they talk about... Uh, or, you know, like, they're getting, like, lovey-dovey with each other, Matt LeBlanc and this, this lady character, and Lydia, I think is her name, and she, you know, like, they're, they're getting really intimate, and, like, I kept thinking, like, man, it would fucking make my day if this movie, like, all of a sudden just had this, like, raunchy fucking graphic sex scene, and just, like, you know, like, rated R level sex scene, you know, nudity, all that stuff, and then just fucking had it there, you know, like, I mean, it would have, it would have fucking made my day. We get a time-lapse montage of the kid and the chimp, you know, cleaning up the house and stuffing everything behind a door that, you know, is never going to come back. <laughs> anyway, uh, the owner guy, the president or whatever, the asshole guy that is like the antagonist of this movie, he keeps appearing with this bizarre behavior and it's like really upsetting to me. Like, I don't really understand what it is. And... They all of a sudden, like, he, basically the, the president takes, he has Ed taken away to another team, and, you know, his, I think it's his dad or the real owner of the, the team shows up and, like, chastises him for getting rid of the, the chimp. And they're, they're, they're trying to, like, dial up how emotional this movie's gonna be, and it's like, it didn't have to be like this. Like, there, there could be one, one plot and no underarching, you know, elements there and it would have been fine but they had to make it be like there was drama and there was like extra shit and it's like no it should just be that he has to rescue this chimp and that's it i mean i kind of would have liked the the movie better if it would have been like the chimp you know shatters every bone in his hand or something and can't play and then you know they just they just have to win without him you know that would have been a cool turn of events but that's not what they did and they have him, they have Matt LeBlanc chase him. He goes to this, you know, the other team, the team that they sold him to's uh, baseball field and they have Matt LeBlanc break him out and it it's all super cartoonish as you might imagine. And they, they take Ed, the chimp, to a hospital for people and they are actually treating Ed at this fucking hospital. Not a vet to be seen in this area. Anyway, and then, so, like, you you are to understand that, like, Ed is okay, he's in the hospital, but he's okay, and so Matt LeBlanc comes back and tells Chubb, the baseball manager, uh, he tells him that he is, he, like, he whispers in his ear what's going on, and then two seconds later, the manager just announces that very same thing to all the players that were standing around while Matt LeBlanc was whispering in his ear, and I don't understand it. And it's not clear why Lydia is sitting in the announcer's booth for this final game. It's just like, ever, and everybody's freaking out because, you know, Matt LeBlanc throws one pitch to this batter that he's been having trouble with. And it's a strike. And it's like, okay, that's one, guys. That's, I don't know if you know this. He has to get three of those. So calm the fuck down. And the next pitch, the batter hits a home run distance foul ball. 
which everybody's like, oh, thank God, you know, and it's just like, yeah, but that's like not, it's not saying a lot of good things about him. Like, it's not saying good things about what's to come, but like, apparently it was. And actually, like, it's at this point that I noticed that the score to this movie was everything that it should be, like, given the movie it is. Like, I can't really fight the score. The, the movie never once captured my heart or soul at all to, to get any interest or any care for what was going on. Biggest praise for this movie would be uh, the score, and then I think that's it. And as far as criticism, I've mentioned some things, but like the cartoonishness, the 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 overloadedness of the plot, even though it's not really that overloaded, it's not like it's the Dark Knight or something where it's like it's got all of these fucking webs and everything's one thing after another. It's just, it's very poorly concocted, I guess. And one little piece of trivia, the mechanical chimp head made so much noise that all the lines in the scenes featuring Ed had to be 80 yard. Oh yeah, which means dubbed over, which they'd have to re-record the lines and then enter, you know, insert them into the movie. Runtime, 94 minutes. Budget, 24 million. Worldwide gross, 4.4 million. IMDb rating, 2.7. Rotten Tomato Critics score, 0%. Or not applicable, I couldn't find any actual number for that. Rotten Tomato audience score, 22%. Personal rating, 0.5 out of 5 stars. Thank you very much, that's the bottom of the barrel. And I'm sorry this episode ran so long, but you know, that's them's the breaks. It's, I had another movie lined up that I didn't even go into because it was, you know, recording time-wise, I'm at an hour and 30 minutes already, so... I didn't really want to push my luck. So thanks everybody for tuning in. Let me know if you have any ideas, any thoughts, any pitches. Uh, Just send them my way. Thank you and have a good day. Bye-bye. Brandon at Random Reviews is performed, written, directed, produced, and edited by Brandon Griffiths. Theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz from Fiverr. 